This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Here is your host, Laura Zarrow. Welcome to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how we can help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics for today's show about dignity and its role in resolving conflict and creating productive cultures, both at work and in the world around us. Our phones are open at 844-WHARTON, that's 1-844-942-7866, and we'd love to hear your thoughts and questions. Has conflict at work eroded your team's effectiveness? Have you felt shamed by colleagues or your supervisors? Give us a call at 1-844-WHARTON, that's 844-942-7866. Our guest today is truly an expert in all this and more. Donna Hicks has spent over 25 years working on international conflict resolution. An associate at the Weatherhead Center for International Affairs at Harvard University, Donna was the deputy director of the Program on International Conflict Analysis and Resolution at Harvard for 10 years. She's worked extensively on international conflict issues and diplomatic efforts in some of the world's most contentious environments, including the Middle East, Colombia, and Northern Ireland. Having seen the devastating impact of indignity on a grand scale, she brought her background in psychology to bear on creating solutions, developing a new paradigm for conflict resolution that applies not just to countries, but to organizations and individuals as well. Her first book on the subject was Dignity, the Essential Role It Plays in Resolution. Solving Conflict, which she has fortunately followed with the newly released Leading with Dignity, How to Create a Culture that Brings Out the Best in People, which I can't wait to talk with her about today, which is why I'll say, Donna, welcome to Women at Work. Oh, thank you. So, Donna, before I read your book, I would have defined dignity as a personal attribute, something we displayed or that could be taken from us. And you really build on it in such a different way. Could you help us understand, give us a new framework for thinking about dignity? Well, I have to say, Laura, that I had the same um, notion when I first started thinking about dignity. In fact, in the work that I did in international conflicts, it was, um, you know, people would always say to me that, you know, I had my dignity stripped from me by the other parties, by the other side of the conflict, and my dignity has been lost, and and I really felt like dignity was something, what was a personal attribute, it could come and go. And it was, it was um, Archbishop Desmond Tutu who really shook me up about this definition of dignity. He, he was the one, I was working with him up in Northern Ireland uh, several years ago, and he said to, he told me that I was really misguided when I, because I told him my, my, my clients always said that, you know, their dignity was stripped from them. And he said, whatever you do, don't perpetuate that myth. Nobody can take our dignity away from us. And then he looked at me with this really, you know, funny look on his face. And he said, how do you think we ever got through apartheid? The only thing we had to get us through those dark moments was our dignity, knowing that our in God-given um, w- sense of value and worth was in our hands and our hands only. So it was a shock effect, actually, Laura. <laughs> I was really surprised because it, it changed my life. It complete, and if nothing happens in this, radio, in this hour that we share together, I hope our, your listeners will take away this, this fundamental truth about what it means to be human and that is every single one of us has dignity because we're born with it. You know, it's part of our birthright. And, and so, so it is phenomenal how that transformation, if you really accept that and claim your dignity, your own personal dignity, how that affects your life. And it's amazing to hear this story and also to think about, you know, how did an entire population get through um, decades of oppression? Um, and it's by maintaining that sense of self. Exactly, that deep sense of worth, that nobody can take that sense of value and worth away from me. Now, you know, because those people were, like you said, they were oppressed, they were treated like second-class citizens, they were degraded, diminished, all of that. And yet they knew, they knew deep inside that they 
had had dignity, and that was what got them through the, the, the most difficult moments. And that sounds like a fundamental emotional truth. There's something huge, though, about discovering that and framing it, not just in, in that it helps us all see that we have that worth, but you saw, you connected the dots between that idea and how you use dignity to resolve international conflict? Yeah. How, well, it was such an interesting, um, you know, I- interesting tra- trajectory, how I got from thinking, you know, that these conflicts are, you know, almost hopeless and nothing's going to ever happen to resolve them. And and when I figured out, and it's a very long story, I can't go through <laughs> it now, but the, the long story was that I figured out that when we were sitting down to these negotiating tables with, um, you know, with the parties in conflict, and we would always be discussing the political issues that divided them. And yet I could see, because I was, I am trained as a political psychologist, what I could see was that the emotional reactions to you know, some of the issues that were being raised was so profound. It was like a, I call it an emotional tsunami would take over the process. And even when there was a, even when there was a chance to actually get agreements on certain issues, these, these emotional um, upheavals would prevent them from signing to this, onto the agreement. And I realized at that juncture that this emotion, we were having the wrong conversation, that we needed to be having a conversation about these, you know, emotional reactions to what was going on. And very long story short, I realized that what they were reacting to was to, was they were reacting to violations of their dignity by the other side. They really felt insulted. They felt like, you know, can't you see we're human beings? How dare you treat us this way? So... And then at that juncture, you know, Laura, I realized, okay, this is about all these conflicts. I see it everywhere. I see it in Sri Lanka. I see it in Africa. I see it in Asia. I see it everywhere. It's, it's, the, it's the highest common denominator, oddly, and that is that we all yearn to be treated with dignity, every single one of us. It is our highest aspiration, and yet we know so little about it. And so that's what launched me into investigating the depths of this and Really, it was um, it was quite a quite a revelation for me to to recognize how deep and how important this is to all of us. It's both fundamental and really game changing. So it's one of the one of the things I need to ask about though is um, and make sure I'm understanding because it sounds like when you're at these international negotiation tables, the work at hand is about international deal making. Yet it's done by human beings who are themselves individuals. When you talk about that dignity, are in those cases, is it about a, a sense of national dignity, or is it really we're still individuals at the negotiation table, and that's going to affect how we interact with each other? Yeah, I mean that's a that's an interesting question because I think it's both, to tell you the truth, because they are being singled out in <clears throat> for whatever reason, whether it's some aspect of their identity, like their ethnicity or their race or. There's always some identity issue in these big conflicts. Um, and so there is that sort of group identity uh, reaction. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, just as you said, it's, it's an individual who is experiencing those reactions. You know, whether they come from a group affiliation or whether they come from a direct hit that someone, you know, shames you or embarrasses you or mistreats you, it's 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 really um, it's really both and that's the reason why some of these conflicts are so difficult to resolve because we never really get to these core human issues you know these core core deep drivers these all of these un, unhealed dignity violations that are just you know right below the surface and you scratch just a little bit and you'll see people people who are normally you know really calm good negotiators if you if you hit on a dignity issue they can they can just change their personnel like all of us can. I mean, I'm, right. I've exploded many times, you know, when someone's violated my dignity. So it's it's both, and and I think that's what makes it so difficult and so, um, you know, so so impossible to try to come to agreements because this stuff is never addressed. If it were addressed, and this is my my theory, that's not only a theory but it's my experience. When we have these ding- dignity conversations before you sit down to the negotiating table to try to hammer out a deal, then you're far more likely to get an agreement and to get some kind of compromise on these issues. 
But if you let these dignity violations just, you know, stay under there unacknowledged and unaddressed, well, you know, it, the, even if you do sign on mm-hmm. to an agreement, it's going to pop up somewhere else in the future and you're going to rekindle the conflict. It makes perfect sense. I also want to focus on a specific word choice that you made, because as you were explaining, you know, our dignity is not stolen from us. It's it's a it's our fundamental existence and rights as humans. Um, but it can be violated. Yes. And that um, when we're shamed, when we are mocked, when things are when we're disrespected, it violates our dignity, which is what produces that ripple effect. So, you know, there's a science behind this, too, Laura, that, that really surprised me. I mean, I, I did all kinds of research looking at what neuroscientists are now saying about, you know, what happens to us when we have these social interactions that are so painful and, you know, devastating to us when someone humiliates us or, or you know, discriminates us from us uh, because of some aspect of our identity or if we're treated unfairly. We, I mean, there's nothing more knee-jerk than a reaction to, you know, being treated unfairly. We hate that, we humans. Mm-hmm. And so the neuroscientists have discovered that these reactions that we have that are very physical, you know, we have the, our heart rate increases. You might start, you know, your face turns red if you were being shamed. And these reactions actually share a, a common neural pathway in the brain, meaning that it, the part of the brain that's activated when we experience one of these uh, violations of our dignity is the same area of the brain as when we experience a physical wound. So the brain doesn't know the difference. You know, what's happening to me here? So it's not like it's one of these things that you can just brush under the carpet because the neuroscience has shown these are real injuries. These are real assaults to our our personhood. And the brain doesn't even know the difference. What what happened is was that a physical wound or was that a wound to my dignity, you know? So it and it just validates just knowing this. I mean, I cannot tell you how many people I've worked with who've said, "Donna, just having this I this notion that these dignity violations are real, they're visceral." They are experienced by us like a physical wound. It's so validating, and it legitimizes people's suffering. So it's, it can't be underscored how important it is that we figure out and we learn how to treat each other with dignity. And, you know, we've had before us in the news recently, we see people who feel like they've been treated unfair, violated. It's in our own national discourse about the Supreme Court. And it's amazing to see how hurt and angry collective groups are and individual groups are. And so this suggests that there's another way to approach these things. Oh, I would, you know, I, I, of course, you can just imagine how much time and how much sleep I've lost worrying about all of this. (laughs) You know, I I just got an email from a a colleague who said, you have to come to Congress with me. We've got to figure this out. And, you know, I mean, the problem is, Basically, it's a huge gap in our understanding of our own humanity and the humanity of the humanness. I don't want to say humanity. I want to say humanness because every human being reacts this way. And if we can be educated, if we can understand how to have disagreements with people without going there, without making it an attack on their personhood, attack assault to their dignity, you know, we can figure out how to do this. But we do have to have those those conversations about the, the, the assaults to dignity because it's this, this back and forth and polarization that we're experiencing, it's not going to go anywhere but deeper unless we figure out a better way of having these conversations. I mean, I, I've given talks uh, entitled How to Disagree with Dignity. How can we do that? How can we have political differences and differences in interpretations of events, everything? that still preserves the dignity of not only our own dignity, but the dignity of of others. Indeed. And while we're talking about this playing out on an international level or on our national stage, um, you've also brought this to work with organizations, yes? Well, that was such an interesting experience, yes. As you know, I mean, my, my day job is as an international conflict resolution specialist, and I got a call one day from a from a business consultant who said that he had read about my dignity uh, approach to resolving conflict. He had read about it online, and he said, I've been working with this company for 
many years, and we can't figure out how to resolve these employee management issues. And he said, would you be willing to talk to us? He said, because I just have a feeling that one of the, deep, the deepest divide between management and employees, are, there, there are dignity issues hidden under there. Because we're talking about things like, you know, pay and sick leave, and we're, we're talking about all these uh, tangible, objective issues. But this guy, he was a very savvy person. He said, what about these emotional issues that go, that, you know, run deeper than what these presenting problems are between the two, the two groups? So I went in, and sure enough, I mean, sure enough, the, the, having discussions with both management and employees, it was clear that there were dignity violations going on between these two groups back and forth. I mean, I wouldn't say they were equal. I would say that, you know, there, were, that there was a lot of responsibility on the management side, but the employees were also giving it right back. You know, they were viol- returning the violations. You know, they were taking the bait, as it were, and returning the violations. Ah, so it wasn't, so while it may have been initiated by those who held power, it became something that was moving in both directions. It moved in both directions, yes. But, I mean, of course, the people who have the power have the power to change that, too. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's about how do we take responsibility for, especially in a leadership position, what do we do to take responsibility for the harm that we have, might have caused? And, you know, here's the other thing, Laura, that I, I was really uh, surprised to, to, to learn. It wasn't even like these people in the management they, well, it's not even like they were bad people. They were they were decent people. They just had no clue about the impact of their actions on on the their employees. You know, they had no understanding of dignity whatsoever. Their dignity consciousness, if I were to rate them, it would be you know it would be a failing grade. So they had no but, awareness no, that enabled them no. to change. By That's the way, right. By the way, you're listening to Women at Work here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, and my guest this hour is Dr. Donna Hicks, author of Leading with Dignity, How to Create a Culture that Brings Out the Best in People. If you have a question about what we're discussing, a story to share, we'd love to hear from you. Give us a call. Our phone number is 1-844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. So, Donna, as you're talking about this, you know, it's clear I didn't know how to define dignity at first. We have people who are in leadership positions who don't understand the impact their behavior has on honoring or violating others' dignity. Talk to us about where our dignity comes from. How do we, if we all have it as this, you know, we're born with this. It's our value as humans. Where do we get off track? Well, you know, the way I convince audiences when I give talks about uh, about this, the way I convince audiences that we do we are born with dignity and that we have inherent value and worth. I have a a slide of a beautiful infant newborn that's being held in the pot in the hands of uh, this baby's father, and it's just this naked, beautiful, you know, little infant who is who is just born with a you know, the glow, the gorgeousness of this little living creature. And I say to people, are, are you kidding me? Are you, are you going to question whether that child has value and worth? I mean, and everybody just kind of goes, oh. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I talk to them about what it's like, what we feel when um, these precious little things come into our lives. We are just, they turn, to, turn us into mush, you know. We become so soft. I mean, they're soft and cuddly, but... We become that way too when we're in their presence, and 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 that's that's what I think we have to return to, is that sense of, of understanding the preciousness of each other. Where does it? What happens to it? You know, I, it's so funny. I gave this talk to a group of um, middle school uh, teachers not long ago, and this one, and I asked that question: What happens? You know, where does that? Where does this 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 love and this sense of connection in this? you know, understanding of the dignity of this child. Where does that go? And what happens? And this middle school teacher said, I'll tell you what happens. Adolescence is what happens. <laughs> it's unfortunate, but it's true. And yeah. also one yeah. of the things that you wrote about that I thought was really illuminating was that um, how the experiences that we have in early childhood um, affect the way that we um, understand and can relate to our own dignity. Can you talk yes. a little bit about that? 
Well, as little little ones, you know, think about that little infant baby. You know, get a picture of one in your mind. The fact is that that child is really vulnerable. Um, we that child needs us for everything. For you know, to be fed, to be you know clothed, to be you know all, all the basic physical needs. We the, the parents and the caretakers, we're responsible for that that nurturing that sense of you know well-being in that child. But the truth is that that child's dignity is equally as vulnerable. And if we don't pay close enough attention, we as the caretakers of these young ones, if we don't understand how, how vulnerable these kids are, because they do get derived their sense of their own value and worth from how they're treated in childhood, and you know it's it's really a it's a it's a shocking kind of realization because you know that's it's so much weight and there's so much responsibility that we have if that's really the case you know that that baby's um dignity needs to be nurtured and loved and protected just as much as his physical well-being um you know that is an awesome responsibility and and yet the return that we get when we do you know, have that kind of connection and that relationship with the children. It's, it's really um, magnificent to see them blossom into really confident, um, self-assured young adults. So, but it is a big challenge, let me tell you. It is, I mean, I personally don't have children. I wasn't blessed with that, but um, I, I know, I, I know how difficult it is to engage when you have a kid who's, you know, maybe a little difficult and at times, and but it is it is so important to recognize that, you know, this kid might be acting out because he might have felt like his dig- little dignity was was wounded for some reason. And, so. and and one of the other things that you wrote about that was related and kind of underscores that, um, or gives um, some detail to it, is that when kids are taught that their voices don't matter or that um, they're constantly criticized um, and shamed about things, um, embarrassed about their performance, what they look like, how they reacted to something. That has a big ripple effect on them, doesn't it? Oh, it does. It does. I mean, it's really devastating because, you know, as as young people, they are in a very fragile state with their dignity. Even and even if they get great parenting, they can go out into the schools and, you know, that environment can be really brutal uh, for young children. I mean, we all, we all know how, may, how much bullying has been an issue, in, especially in the news. And, and, you know, it's one of the reasons why, I mean, one chapter in that, my new book, Leading with Dignity, I write about all the schools that I have mm-hmm. worked with to develop curriculum as young as five, you know, kindergarten, starting in kindergarten, but, um, and these children, they really react to it so positively once they understand, and they do get what it means for somebody to treat them badly. The sense of embarrassment is so, you know, overwhelming for young kids, and it continues all the way through adolescence and early adulthood. And, and, And just imagine if you had the skills and the tools as a teacher to help get these kids to know what Tutu was telling me, that your dignity is always inside you. It is always there. Don't let anybody think, you know, even if people mistreat you, here's the message. Even if people mistreat you, your dignity is always there, and nobody's going to take that away from you. Yes, we need to be healed from those. We need to go and say to our teachers, so-and-so just, you know, hurt me, hurt my dignity. We, we have to know how to do that, how to get healing as little ones, too. But I'm telling you, you wouldn't believe how, um, how smart they are uh, around these issues. <laughs> no, and, they they, and so while smart. they don't have language for it always, they certainly they feel it and respond to it, which makes me wonder, um, as adults— you know, we don't have the benefit of going to a school that has a dignity curriculum at this right, point. But right. we see what happens to adults um, who never learned a different way. And yeah. um, I think these automatic reactions that happen when we are shamed, when we are bullied, um, yeah. that it, is it possible for us to become aware of the dynamics in those cases so that we can behave differently and not have that automatic um, kind of brain response? 
You know, I have seen remarkable uh, changes in people. I I would have never uh, imagined, honestly. I have seen people uh, do a 180 turnaround in their behavior, and it is the not. I can't even describe to you how how deep the knowledge gap is. And once they learn this, they really understand it. You know, they have to get over most people. I mean, including myself, we we have to get over the embarrassment. Um, maybe treating other people really badly um, or the embarrassment of, you know, reacting, taking the bait when somebody else treated us badly, all of that stuff. Um, the shame is, the, the, is what we have to get over, you know, of, gee, maybe I am a dignity violator. You know, and and, and I, always, I always tell people, because it's the truth, I'm a recovering dignity violator myself, so I know, you know, I have a Dignity Violators Anonymous uh, program here in Boston. Anybody can come. <laughs> it's a joke, not really. But, I know. Um, but, you know, like there's no uh, humor without truth. And there is truth exactly. in the fact that we all demonstrate these things. Yeah, I mean, we're all guilty. We're all guilty. And if those of us, uh, this is why I think leading with dignity is so important, because I consider leadership a privilege. I don't consider it something that you earn just because you get good grades. Or You have to understand this part. You have to understand what it means to be human. Because I always say, if you're going to lead people, you better understand them. And even more importantly, you better understand yourself and what these reactions can do. Because here's the thing, you know, when people are treated well, there's all kinds of research in the business ethics community now that's demonstrating that when people are treated well in their workplace, they are much more likely to be engaged in their work. They'll give um, all their discretionary energy to um, to the you know to the job their, their loyalty increases all of these benefits if you're a leader in a leadership position and you understand how to treat people well and what it means you and know, everything how, how, changes and everything changes everything Donna everything. we and need to take a short break and okay. I can't wait to come back to all of this how we advance our own dignity how we make sure we're stopping violating others um, we're going to continue the conversation give us a call if you like one 844 Wharton that's 844-942-7866 I'm Laura Zarrow and you're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio powered by the Wharton School here on Sirius XM 132 we'll be back in just a moment you're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio. Here again is Laura Zaro. Welcome back to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how to get more women to join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zaro, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics for today's show on dignity. We've been talking with Dr. Donna Hicks, author of Leading with Dignity, How to Create a Culture that Brings Out the Best in People. Donna has been working for over 25 years in international conflict resolution. She's an associate at the Weatherhead Center for International Affairs at Harvard University, and her first book on dignity was called Dignity, The Essential Role It Plays in Resolving Conflict, which really looked at this uh, kind of at the international landscape, um, resulting from her success in working with countries to sort out their differences. She wound up bringing her work inside organizations where she found that this kind of approach to dignity can fundamentally change the way people experience one another and as a result, how we operate together and in organizations. So I couldn't be happier to have her with us today. Donna, welcome back back to Women at Work. Yes, thank you. So before the break, we were talking about how the relationship between dignity and leadership. Could you talk to us about, and you've also written in your book about kind of three different levels or stages of dignity um, that need to be in place in order for us to lead effectively. Can you kind of walk us through some of that? Yeah, let me let me just say one thing while I was waiting uh, uh, or during the break, it's, I want to put a P.S. on what I was saying right before the break. Sure. That when when leaders find that, figure out that, um, you know, this was just a piece of their education that they never got. Once they understand that, it's they say to themselves, "Oh, I'm. I, you mean I'm not a bad person because I uh. might have violated the dignity of." And I said, "No, you're not a bad person. Join the human race. You know, we all do this." And so it does, there is some way of taking that shame I was telling you about earlier. 
because the shame is a barrier to even looking at your behavior. So, and so if we can eliminate that shame and get people to hold the mirror up and see what they're doing to other people, it is so much easier. And so I want to explore that a little bit before we go on to the other stuff, that um, if we think about when we feel shame, um, we could feel shame um, and let's talk about it in a work context because we've made a mistake on a project. We did something wrong in front of our colleagues or peers. Um, what happens when we, how does that feeling of shame relate to our bad behavior? Well, I mean, we engage in all kinds of cover-up, right? I mean, the problem is instead of coming clean and saying, gee, you know, going to your boss and saying, boy, you know, I, I really made a mistake here and I want to give you a heads up because um, you know, I, it's going to affect my teamwork and it's going to affect the outcome of our project. Now, that's one aspect of it. The other side of it, which is what we were about to talk about, one of the other things is that the leadership team has to create an environment where people feel safe to speak up like that if they've made a mistake. And the best way, the best way for them to... Um, to communicate that is when they do the same. If when they model that, gee, you know, I'm sorry that I made a decision that negatively affected my direct reports, and I'm really sorry. Let's, you know, let's move on and regroup. And but if if you're in an environment where it's a shame culture, where you know the leadership isn't taking responsibility for their their actions, when there's no accountability when something goes wrong. You know, you're not you as a uh, a direct report to someone or an employee. You're not going to feel, yeah, this is the kind of environment where I can I can admit to making a mistake. You know, you get engaged then in all kinds of cover up behaviors. You know, you try to save face and you deceive your, you deceive everybody. You lie. You say, you know, all these things that we we fall into these traps that um, that are and, and it's our biology wanting to protect ourselves so we don't look bad in the eyes of others. And it's ironic because when you started to describe this, there's a certain malevolence that it sounds like it's part of it, but in many, and it's it, perhaps only malevolent if you know better, but it seems like it's a, it's a lot of this, these are automatic reactions and that if we're in a culture where it's happening, we don't find another way. That's right. And I would, you know, the, the way the biologists talk about it, I love this, this notion because it really helps me that these reactions, they're like, you know, knee-jerk reactions. They're mm -hmm. instincts and they're involuntary. That's the word that really affected me when I started my, you know, studying this. It's these are involuntary reactions that we are all hardwired to, um, to, to have when we feel like there's a threat to our well-being and there's nothing worse than having this sense that our our dignity is being threatened or we're being exposed for being incompetent or um but you see this is why the culture is so important here laura because you have to as the leadership team create the kind of culture where people feel that you know they're not going to lose their job if they admit to making a mistake. It's not going to negatively affect their performance review. But in fact, wanting that to be part of the whole cultural uh, you know norms that it is okay to make a mistake. And you know, I I have one of my colleagues here at Harvard, Bob Keegan and uh, Lisa Lidhi. They have written a book about um, a, what they call a deliberate, deliberately developmental organization where people are in a learning mode all the time. They, that's what they want to create are opportunities, opportunities for learning. And what they say is that what, what they discovered in their working, their consultations in the, in the corporate world was that people are hired for a job. You know, let's say you're an employee, you're hired to do a job. Actually, he said, most, most people who are hired actually have two jobs that they're working on, the job that they were hired to do and the job of hiding and covering up your sense of incompetence, hiding and covering up right. your mistakes. And I just love that idea that we're, we're doing two jobs here. Right. And the, more, and the more the culture doesn't invite openness and vulnerability – the, the, the greater, more time you're going to spend on all of that cover-up activity. 
So this brings me to, you've written down kind of attributes of dignity. It's like kind of like the Ten Commandments of preserving <laughs> and honoring dignity. Yes. Can and, and also then, what are the things that violate them? And I would love it if you would walk us through some of them, because I think it helps sure. make real where these things happen in our workplace and where we can make choices that put us on one road or the other. So when we're, when we're working... Uh, in an organization, you know, when we have a job, we're with other people all the time, and there's, you know, there are vulnerabilities that each and every one of us experience when we have interactions with, with other people. So one of the things that every human being wants is to have their identity accepted, no matter who they are, no matter their race, their religion, their ethnicity, their sexual orientation. They, people want to be accepted. And so that's the first one, to, uh, wanting their identity accepted. Mm -hmm. And this is, think about this as a way to honor people's dignity, is to, to, you know, to accept their identity and to give them recognition. This is the second thing. People want recognition um, when they've done something well, when they've done a good job. Um, also, acknowledgement. This is a key one because when something bad happens to people, they want acknowledgement for the suffering that they've endured mm -hmm. instead of just saying, oh, suck it up. You know, this is, you know, it's don't worry about that. You know, how many times have you heard that? Just suck it up. Right. Right. Um, inclusion. Everybody wants a sense of belonging. Everybody wants to be a part of. And when you have an organization that really cares about inclusivity, it is it, those kinds of organizations thrive when people feel connected and a sense of belonging. Now, this next one, safety, this, when I have done interviews in the workplace, uh, Laura, 80% of the respond, responses that I get when I ask people what element of dignity is violated the most in, in, your, in your workplace, and people always say safety. Is it their physical safety or emotional no, safety? Not, not physical safety. But here's the thing, and I so I you know I delved a little bit, and I said, well, what safe? What kind of safety? And they said they didn't feel safe to speak up when mm -hmm. something bad happened to them because they were fearful. And again, it's like that whole thing that if you have a culture that invites people to say, gee, you know, you just violated my dignity, or gee, you know, that really hurt when you said that in the staff meeting. So people never feel safe, especially speaking up to their managers or their supervisors or their, you know, their leadership. So safety, this is a huge one for the workplace. But fairness, like we mentioned fairness before, mm -hmm. independence, people don't like being micromanaged. And people want to be understood instead of judged, you know, by some stereotypes or um, just, just, you know, these, these criticisms that you were talking about. And half of the time people engage in criticism and judgment when they don't really understand what's going on. So understanding is a big one. And just two more benefit of the doubt, you know, treat people as if they have a good reason why they do what they do. And finally, the, the, the last element of dignity is um, accountability. People want an apology when something, someone violates them, when someone hurts them. It's such a, you know, it sounds like such a simple thing. Just apologize and move on. Well, it is the wor it is the hardest thing to do sometimes. It's, it, it sounds like ahead. this is almost a list of do unto others. Like, well, it, yes. And yeah. that, but the problem is that because we become afraid or anxious, we lose sight of these things. And I See, think that's it. It's the fear, right? And the anxiety that makes us dignity violators. It is. It is. And it's those deep emotional reactions that I was seeing at the negotiating tables that was making even real all, all, all the negotiators I dealt with were all brilliant people and committed people. But once they felt their dignity had been violated, you go into another mode of thinking, right? You're no longer able to keep your, your perspective open. And it, dignity violations close down that sense of I think about it as it, you create a sort of straw vision. You know, you have this real tiny, narrowed vision when mm -hmm. you're when you're mistreated. 
And that's why we just lash back. That's what we do. I, it's like I, we, we forget all those other, you know, norms of civility. Absolutely. I think it's what we saw play out in the Supreme Court hearings. That oh, we did. Almost every single one of these was violated for both of them in one way or another. It's so true. That's exactly right. So when we're in situations like this, what what are the especially at work? How can we learn to approach these things differently? Yeah, well, there's many different entry points into answering that question. I know it's a big but, question. Well, no, it's not so much that, but it's 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 what perspective do you want to take? Because what I have argued in um, in my book is that if you're in a leadership position and you want to create a culture where you bring out the best in people, where you're not violating their behavior, when you're not, you know, exposing them to shame and humiliation. If you want that, then you have to establish policies that are dignity-honoring policies. You have to learn. You have to commit yourself as a, a member of the leadership team to how do you do this? How do you honor people's dignity? And so if you already have established, and then you know, I go into great detail about what I do with organizations about making them sign a dignity pledge. Everybody who gets hired signs a dignity pledge. And because the leadership team is really determined to create this kind of dignity-honoring culture. So, so that's assuming, right? Assuming you have that overarching agreement on the part of the leadership team that your organization is going to be a dignity-honoring organization, then it's not so difficult for people to come forward and say, hey, look, you might not have understood what you were, you know, how you were uh, treating me, but... It really felt terrible to be called out in that staff meeting. I mean, it was embarrassing to me, and you probably didn't mean to do it, but, you know, I mean, there's all sorts of ways of doing this. You have to learn how to deliver that kind of feedback, but you have to learn how to accept that kind of feedback. So but behind that, with, um, behind that um, ability to give and accept yeah. feedback, um, and this is something you write beautifully about in the book, is the role of vulnerability and trust. Could you talk yeah. a little bit about that? Yes. Well, you know, again, what, one, of the, one of the things that I argue is important for leadership is to show that kind of vulnerability. Because when, um, when, when people feel like their dignity is violated, their employees and the leadership team doesn't take any responsibility for it, doesn't say that they're sorry, they, you know, it was a bad choice. Well, trust is the first thing that goes. You know, trust, a, a trust, uh, a breakdown in trust is only one dignity violation away. All it takes is one. And there's the people don't trust that they're not going to be violated again. That's what the breakdown is. They're fearful that they're going to be violated again. And so, you know, in a, if you know if in if you're in a leadership position and you don't make yourself vulnerable you don't invite the kind of feedback you say if you're a, in a manager if a manager and you say to your employees look you know i want to know what i don't know i want to know that if i have blind spots and i'm i'm hurting you or violating your dignity i want you to come to me and tell me that but here's the key to that uh, laura the key to that is you can be vulnerable when you know that your dignity is in your hands and in your hands only. Without that, I call it Mandela consciousness because it's this notion, tutu consciousness, I really should call it, that knowing that your dignity is intact always, it mm -hmm. might be injured, but you can make yourself vulnerable um, knowing that your dignity isn't on the line. And, and the other thing that we can do is we can be much more generous as leaders, when we know that our dignity is intact, we can give people what they want. And also we can invite them to be honest and to be transparent about how they're feeling in that relationship, because there's nothing more important than the relationship, You're right, right? Between the managers and or the leaders and the people 
they're um, supposed to be their direct report. Because that's at the heart of to be leading. It's at the heart of how our team works. By the way, this is yeah. Women at Work, and I'm your host, Laura Zarrow. I'm talking with Donna Ho- Donna Hicks about her book, Leading with Dignity. If you'd like to call us and ask a question or tell us a story, we'd love to hear from you. We're at one eight four four Wharton. Um, and once again, I'm Laura Zarrow here on Sirius XM one thirty two with Women at Work. So, Donna, this incredible. Um, you're talking almost about an ecosystem where whether yes. whether it's we're talking about a big organization, our own teams or how our country operates, it's there's got to be a kind of mutual trust and a mutual candor that yeah. is create and but we have to make a safe place for it or we don't get to learn about each other. Is that a fair way of putting it? Oh, I think it's perfect. So, when we look at how we come into organizations and we see a problem like you were talking about you come in as an external consultant and you can have everybody sign a dignity agreement what are some things that people can use in their day-to-day lives at work to help stop the the growth of a negative culture yeah i mean i i think the first and foremost is just being aware of your actions being aware of how you're affecting other people you know, I, I had this, this one story that I told um, about this beautiful woman. She was, uh, she was in a uh, manage, she was a manager. Uh, she had about tw- maybe 15 or so direct reports. And she was just the most lovely person. When I t- talked to her, she was, you know, engaging and, you know, she had great social skills. And, and w- when I spoke to her direct reports, it turns out that they were very upset with her because, she would walk into the office every day and wouldn't even say hello, didn't give them eye contact. She just had her, you know, head to the ground, I mean, looking down and then just headed into her office, and she never interacted. And that really surprised me because I found her to be just really charming and lovely. And it turns out I set up a feedback um, arrangement, you know, a feedback session with both the direct reports and her so that she could hear directly from them what you know the effect was of her not even saying good morning and not even looking at them and she was just shocked because she said all she could think about was all, all the work that she had and all the responsibilities and she was you know and she didn't even think for a minute that she was having this negative effect she was in a bubble so so what the most important thing we could do is to think about think about how we're affecting other people. You you, know? you used a term in the book called the balcony view. Yeah, oh yeah. And I also talked about moments it. when it's particularly useful to take that view. Could you tell us about that? Yes. So the balcony view is something that I learned from one of my colleagues here, Ron Heifetz. And the balcony view is basically um, a place, well, Let's just say, for example, that you are um, experiencing, you're getting really angry, right? You're in your, work, in your work environment and something has ticked you off and you're really upset and you're about to go to your direct report who messed things up, right, who made some big mistake. You're about to go to, to um, reprimand the person. I mean, you, you want to really lash out at this person. And so, but the balcony view is, when you stop, when you feel yourself, again, being aware of what your own reactions are, you feel your anger brewing, and instead of responding from that angry place, you push the pause button, and you just stop yourself, and you ask yourself, what am I, how do I want to behave here? Do I want to return the dignity violation here, or do I want to try to solve this problem? And so the balcony is this, this place, if you think about getting up, uh, climbing up a set of stairs and watching yourself, watching yourself how you're behaving and, and especially in your interaction with a person that you want to lash out at. Just take a look and ask yourself the question, how do I want to react here? What other forces are acting on us? How, what's going on with this woman? You know, why was she reacting the way she did? But it's a, it's a way of just stopping that and that what I call those involuntary responses mm-hmm. where you want to just go lash out. But here's a, another really fun aspect of this, too. When I said you push the pause button, you know, just stop yourself. Well, I um, 
was in communication with this neuroscientist, and she's she was saying that um, you, when you feel that uh, that anger coming up, your body react, your brain is reacting by producing all this cortisol. It makes you want to fight, right? It's, right. It makes your then, heart race and your, your temperature rise. Yeah, you get, so your your biochemistry is affecting your behavior. It's making you want to eat, you know, to fight. And so she said you can't. She said you have to wait at least 90 seconds for that stuff to, you know, to run through your body. Don't ever react in those first 90 seconds because you're likely to, you know, return the harm. <laughs> and I'm thinking 90 seconds. Are you kidding me? It usually <laughs> takes me like 90 days to get over something like that. But there's a gift in this in that I even notice with like hot flashes that if they're yeah. stress triggered, it's almost a gift if you can say, where's this coming from? Exactly. Pause yourself and get a hold of it. You also yeah. talked about that balcony view as a chance to take in what's going on with the other person and bring some empathy to the table. Exactly. Can you exactly. talk a little bit about the role of empathy and how we also, it's not just about preserving our own dignity, it's about honoring the dignity of others. Yes. Well, you know, the, the, some of the great biologists that I read when I'm, you know, I'm really delving into what, is, what does it mean to be a human being here in this book? What does it mean? What are we missing in our understanding about our own, our own humanness and what it's like to be the other? And, you know, one of the, the E.O. Wilson has said that one of the ways that we are going to make it through these, these terrible times that we're experiencing with all these wars and conflicts and, um, is to tap into a basic instinct. I and mean, we've got all these other basic instincts that we just talked about, self-preservation, mm-hmm. that get us into terrible trouble. But he says we also have in, in, in our hardwiring the capacity to empathize with others, to feel the feelings of others. And he thinks, he actually believes that the only way we're going to turn this, all these crises around that we're experiencing in the world, crises and relationships, is if we we rekindle and if we reignite, I call it activate, activate that primal empathy that we're all born with. And, and, but, you know, we lose it. We lose, we can lose it very quickly when we get into conflicts with other people. In fact, empathy is the first thing to go. So, so if we understand this about us, if we understand that God, when we get angry, I don't care how I affect that other person. I just want to, I want to destroy that person. If we understand it can get on the balcony and take a look and say, gee, I'm really upset here. Am I understanding everything about what went on with that person? Is there something that I might be missing that create, caused her to, to react in the way she did? Or That's how you can rekindle that empathy. That, and we all have the capacity for it. I have a friend in the U.K., who has started a, a whole a big organization about how to rekindle empathy in international conflict. So this cannot be underscored about how important really getting ourselves back to feeling with other people, understanding the effect that we have on other people, and just simply, you know, connecting with people in a way that is dignity honoring. I mean, and really. I'm yeah, sorry. Ahead. And so, so it sounds like because we're running out of time that if we can understand that we keep with us our fundamental self-worth and we honor the fundamental self-worth in other people, then we can bring the empathy to bear on the situation and build the trust to make room there for the vulnerability is. that's necessary to resolve conflict. Yeah. If people want to. It's so true. Donna, I can't thank you enough for your work in general. You're making a safer world for this fabulous book and for joining us today. If people want to find more out about what you're doing, where can they find you? Uh, they can go to my website, drdonnahicks.com, all lowercase, drdonnahicks.com. Donna, thank you so much, and thank you to our listeners. If you have a question about anything you heard on today's show, email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at bizradio132, and I'm at Laura Zarrow. I'd like to thank my beloved producer, Patty Hall, my fantastic sound engineer, Jeffrey Simmons. I'm Laura Zarrow, and you've been listening to Women at Work here on SiriusXM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Have a great week, everyone, and honor each other's dignity.
For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.